You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. What I'm trying to say is Taco Bell has everything as the same thing on the menu, just rolled into a different shape and branded as a different thing with different prices. And it all makes you sick. Anyway, welcome to a Live from the Rooms podcast. Carlton, take it from here. Well, yes, yes. Welcome indeed to a Life in Ruins podcast, episode 164. We're going to investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Just the three of us this week. It's, I guess it's been a couple of weeks since we've done a podcast together. I guess it's two or three weeks. Yeah, take less than yeah, a month since, for sure. Since we've all been on one. Yeah, that was the last one. That was uh, the homo naledi. Okay. Yeah, the burial practices. That was a good episode. Yeah, I was listening was to that good. again on my way back or my way yeah. to Oklahoma. Um, I guess we, we should start off by apologizing if you guys had to listen to whatever crap Zancaster published this week for the the show that Carlton and I did together. We'll apologize for that. We have no idea what's going on. Let us know if it's better, worse. It's actually really funny and we did not fuck up that bad. Yeah, so, it happened to David like a couple weeks, like a week ago too. When that I, episode I listening dropped. to uh, yours with Charles Connor, like it just kept repeating random things, right? Uh, yeah, and it's, it seems to be only Apple. Chris said so. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, it happened um, to me on Spotify yesterday. Did it? Yeah, and it was a downloaded episode, but it was the same thing. It would just cut mid segment and it would like repeat segments. Like I think the end of segment two, it just cut me off and then went into an ad, but like the latter half of an ad. Yeah, that happened to me it too. It was like really weird. So I don't know what's up with it. So if you guys are listening to this episode and it does that, contact us immediately because oftentimes we don't listen to these episodes the day they come out. So if you're having issues listening, yeah. email us at lifeandruinspodcast.gmail.com or reach out to us on any of our socials and we'll get it over to Chris because this has been happening across the archaeology, the archaeology podcast network. I just thought Charles talked in circles a lot and I was like, damn, he already said that. No, he's like he's 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 very eloquent and speaks very was. direct and very <laughs> great interview by the way. It was good. Yeah, only because he was good. So, it was easy to talk to him and I I see him every day. Yeah, it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was fun talking to him. You can also send a bunch of hate to Zencaster too if you feel like it. There's nothing oh, wrong. They sponsor us, so maybe don't do that. I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying. Like, if, <laughs> eh, well, until I see a fucking dime from Zencaster, uh, you know, <laughs> no, fuck there. You know, for for that ad campaign they were supposed to do, we we're supposed to get all this money. I haven't seen it yet, so I mean, like, you know, until I until until our bank account expands, uh, you know, as my grandmother would care. say, "What can you do? What can you do? <laughs> what can you do?" But. So, Carlton, you went on, you were gone last week. Now you, when did you leave? You were, you went on an adventure recently, like, uh, like Bilbo running into the, the Misty Mountains. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I had an impromptu trip back to Pawnee, Oklahoma. I was going to go originally for Pawnee Nation Homecoming. I decided against it because I needed to get some work done. But then, unfortunately, my uncle passed away, so I had to I had to go back for the funeral. And so, because it happened during homecoming, a lot of my family we all just kind of stayed for not only the funeral and the cultural practices surrounding the morning time, then went to uh, stayed for for homecoming because like we were all we were all there. So we decided to attend. What is homecoming? So homecoming, Pawnee Nation homecoming powwow started in 1946 by my grandfather and a couple other veterans. And the whole purpose of homecoming was to every year around July 4th weekend, bring Pawnees from across the country for a Pawnee specific powwow where a bunch of different songs and dances would would occur in events. So that's that's where it started was back in 1946 when all the World War II vets got together to, to host it. So it's hosted by the Pawnee Nation veterans. They're the ones that that are supposed to be running it, the yeah, Pawnee Veterans Organization. So it's it's very much like contemporary powwow stay, there's like a lot of intertribal songs and contests. You no, know, Pawnee Nation powwow is like Pawnee, a lot of war songs, um, and very specific. It's it's all just Pawnee music and activities. So it brings people. That's cool. I I think we've talked about this. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it directly on the podcast, but the Pawnees in general have kind of a at least like a a warlike culture, or there is some emphasis in it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we're very much a warrior society. So, Hadusca uh, society is what we call it. And a lot of that happens really around like looking at the archaeological record, the developments of our warrior society really develop like during that medieval global warming period in the 1400s, but then really takes off during American or Euro-American colonization as more tribes are putting pressure onto the plains, the Lakotas show up and others. And that's where we really see our warrior society take off. And then once we are enlisted by the United States Cavalry as scouts, that transforms that that form of service completely transforms into a, in a whole different context. So, mm. so like even today, veterans hold a very, and especially combat veterans, like everyone else. I, I know Matt listens to this and he might agree, but like if you're in a meeting and there's a combat veteran, it doesn't matter. Or if there's a veteran and you're not, you are overruled all the time. And if there's a combat veteran, like they take precedence so like that. We have like kind of this rank society where definitely military service is very much put on a on, on a pedestal for, for the right reason. So like in, in part of Pawnee culture, like when you or in, or in general Indian culture today, if you go to a powwow, one of the things you're supposed to do as a dancer is provide like a gift to the host or the drum. Pawnees are the only tribe of the country that don't have to do that because we've already given enough blood for this country that we don't have to give anything else. So we have this weird like status even within North American Indian societies is like our warrior society and our service to the United States is recognized on a different level of like, okay, they don't, we have a special status. It's pretty intense because like there's way more Navajo than any other nation I'd imagine. Lakota's recently beat them. Really? Okay. Yeah, so Lakota's there. I think they're both over two hundred thousand enrolled okay. tribal citizens each. But yeah, then there's like Pawnee Nation with like four thousand now, and we have a very oh. specific like status within. And like a lot of Powell culture today, especially if you go, there's a northern style and a southern style. Those are the predominant ones. Most southern style powwows, the songs are Pawnee songs. Hmm. Often, uh, more often than not, there's some other ones you can listen to some Comanche ones and, and Kiowas, but like a lot of songs are Pawnee songs. Because a lot of our culture is still very much intact, yeah. Because of a, because of a lot of our service to the United States, but also just like how deeply organized the Pawnee Nation was, even after removal and, and keeping these songs. Because we had it also goes in the residential school system. How like we didn't have to go so far, even though it was a boarding school, it was still within the Pawnee Reserve. And some did go to Carlisle, the really horrific one in Pennsylvania. Don't get me wrong. But generally, we didn't have that same cultural degradation as like the Navajos did who were like trained out to, you know, Ogden or the Lakotas who were all brought out. It was very much like we were close by and you can't just like beat Pawnee kids. Now, some atrocities did occur, but like their parents are like two miles away. And like, you know, the tribe is all around. Like if you're going to, you know, like systematically fuck up children, you're going to you're going to die. Right. Yeah. So we have some of those, you know, cultural protections built built in. I should say for the record, I think the statistic I was referring to was Navajos, the most spoken indigenous language in the United States, the second most in North America. I didn't, it's not population. I don't think it, it was though, like recently okay. it changed. So they, they used okay. to have the highest population and like everything you said is absolutely correct. Just like within this past year in Indian country, it's like, there's more Lakotas now. And you know, as a okay, Pawnee, wow. that sucks, but for them, you know, good for them. <laughs> yeah. You guys get along very well, right? <laughs> very well. Um, but they're, they're almost Lakotas. I know it's just all teasing. You know, we don't take those things to heart. Follow-up question would be like, I know the Navajo code talkers were like a specific thing or whatever, but with the Pawnee being so involved in World War II, was there any specific roles that they filled or were they just any other yeah. combat veteran? Uh, most of them were combat vets. Um, actually, my grandfather was a Pawnee code talker and so was his brother. So they were cool. awarded the Congressional Code Talker Medals in 2012. Um, I have like a copy in my room. Thanks, I have Obama. a couple of copies of those things. It's just because in part of that warrior society... Back in um, the National Guard days, the 45th Infantry Division, the Thunderbirds, was the most racially diverse National Guard unit in the country. So they were like all Indian units. And so like a lot like my grandfather and a lot of Pawnees, they all went to the National Guard and they were all in like the same company. You know, like they were Hmm. all 45th, 179th Division, Bravo Company, all infantry. And so 
because most of the guys are Pawnees or someone else, like they were speaking code, like they were just speaking. So there are a lot of tribes. The Navajo are very uh, well known for their service in the Marine Corps, where the Marine Corps only used Navajo code talkers. The U.S. Army in Europe, specifically with the National Guard units, they had access to like more tribes, especially in Oklahoma. So they were using like damn near like each division or a lot of these units had their own using own, their own codes of their own languages. So you'd have like, you know, one headquarters tent that had a bunch of different Indians in it speaking to their units on the front line. So they would be speaking Pawnee or Kiowa. And so there was, there's a lot more code talkers than people recognize. But the Navajo code is just very specific to the Marine Corps where the Marines like we're only using this and heavily recruited from uh, the Navajo. I guess for the audience listening who might not know about what we're talking about is that the United States military... And I guess the English too used Native American languages to speak to each other across communications, so that the Japanese and the Germans couldn't like figure out the code. Yeah, like what they couldn't figure. Yeah, pretty cool. Like they didn't have. They had no idea because they didn't have access to the basically the anthropological records. Like today, I don't know you can get away with it, but you know back then these are these are native speakers. Like my grandfather, he was raised by his grandparents who came from Nebraska, right? Like he knew Pawnee and he also knew Plains Indian Sign Language. So those are like first generation. They grew up speaking Pawnee, so they were very fluent when those code talkers were. So yeah, we have the medals. I think my dad and uncle almost left it in a taxi in DC. (laughs) There's like some story behind it. Like after the ceremony, they were in a taxi and they thought they each thought the other brother grabbed it and they had to like chase the taxi down to get this fucking medal. So yeah, so we have this very much so that this homecoming is to recognize a lot to recognize that. So we have everyone here is of Indian princesses. We do have we do actually have princesses, but they're very much a modern day thing. So we have I think I know we have at least two, maybe three, but we have the Pawnee Nation princess, but we also have the Pawnee Nation veterans princess. And so that gets awarded at the powwow. And so there's there's duties and responsibilities with that. So like being a princess today, that's usually a high school girl, carries a lot of weight. Like they're supposed to be ambassadors for our tribe. So even at our homecoming, there were other tribes, princesses there. Like they have to attend and there's like a section for other princesses. So it's it's a really interesting, like as an anthropologist, I look at that because princesses are not an ancestral or traditional thing that is very much a modern like western thing post western thing that we've we've picked up and you know that's they're pretty cool Um, is is there like a word that they would use previously to describe that and had a similar role or is it a completely new role that's kind of adopted from kind of western interaction with western culture the latter the latter yeah yeah, i mean yeah because it's 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 just a ladder thing. It's a very much a newer thing. And like powwows themselves are also very new amalgamations. Like I think they really started showing up really in the 1900s. Nico Holt told me it was like because of the Buffalo Bill show and stuff like that. Like yeah. to, to make Americans like view, I mean, not like natives as if they're an exhibit, but like, you know, just something that New Yorkers had never had contact mm-hmm. with, you know? Yeah. So a lot of roots of like indigenous led, because we also had our Wild West show was Pawnee Bill's world. So there's Buffalo Bill and there's Pawnee Bill. Those were the two major shows. Buffalo Bill used a lot of Lakotas. And what did Pawnee Bill use? A lot of fucking Pawnees. You know, so those are the roots of it. And so that's why like a lot of powwow songs or Pawnee songs. So like we have a very firm root into powwow culture in in that way. Cool. But it's a, it was a fun time. This was the first year. Granted, because of the funeral and my gra- my uncle that that passed away, he's a Vietnam combat vet, and out of respect for him and my family, because he was also helped run Pawnee Veterans Organization and he helped run these things, and he's also a South Bend chief, and he run Kuskahadu, our Wichita visitation, which we're really kind of worried about because I don't we don't no one no one wants to take that up anymore, and the reason why he's South Bend is because the guy that used to run Kuskahadu picked my uncle. And in order to do it, he had to switch bands. So he was Skidi, and then he went to Pitahawidata, and that was a very significant choice that kind of followed him the rest of his life because he lost all credibility within the Skidi band. Um, hmm. It's like you don't want to be Skidi anymore. Fuck it. You don't have a say in our meetings or how Skidis run things. You're like he, it was a big deal that he had to do, and I respect him for it because he, you know. Kuskahado, we've been doing that for 300 years at least. So like he picked that up and has, has run it. 
So homecoming is supposed to run four days, but because of the funeral, it got condensed into two, hmm. which was kind of caused some issues. But uh, I mean, I don't want you to speak on behalf of all Pawnee veterans, but have you overheard stories or like, do you know any opinions on like what it's like for indigenous Americans to fight for the country that killed them? Um, so I'm not privy to those conversations. Okay. You know, it's like, that's, that's a, like our warrior society. You can only be in that if you're a veteran. Sure. So like the stories that I've heard is like before the world war two guys went to war, all the Pawnee scouts that were still alive who fought the Lakotas back in the day, they got them all together and like taught them things and like told them stories, which they yeah. then utilized in Italy and North Africa and Germany. Like they taught them the old tricks of the trade. Like this is when you do night missions. This is how you do this. This is what you need huh. to prepare. So that, and that still moved on from war to war. And then the World War II guys taught it to the Vietnam guys. The Vietnam guys taught it to Desert Storm and, and, yeah. um, so they've kept that knowledge. So it's still there, but it's within our warrior society. I mean, I get it makes sense because if the, the Japanese or the Germans were to take over the continent, like they would also be taken over too. So, I mean, it's better to fight against them. I don't know. Well, I mean, for us, because we never went to war with the United States. Hmm. Our original 1818 treaty that was signed June 18th, my birthday, we agreed to fight for with the United States in perpetuity. So even though mm -hmm. the United States is backed out on that treaty, like the way that our nation looks at it is like, we are still upholding our end of the bargain. So gotcha. like I know some vets, that's how they cope. It's like, well, we're, we're just upholding to what we said we would do. Not necessarily these ideas of freedom or the United States or terrorism. It's like, we have an obligation as part of this treaty to fight for the United States in times of war. Gotcha. Fascinating. So, that's very fascinating. I think on that note, we'll end this first segment and we'll be right back with episode 164 of a Life in Ruins podcast. And we're back to episode 164. So outside of just kind of like general, this background, this was the first year that homecoming wasn't. So it's usually held at the high school football field, which is a little bit down the road and it's off the reserve. It's not technically a reservation anymore. It's a reserve because of the district ways. So we brought it. So this is the first year we had it on the reserve at Moe's Yellow Horse Field. And Moe's Yellow Horse is the first full-blooded Indian to have played Major League Baseball. He played for the Pirates. Um, so we held it there on the reserve. And it was just so much nicer, like actually being on the reserve. And then everyone camps, you, you know, you, you get campsites. So usually everyone camped on the reserve anyway. So rather than having to drive down the street, which isn't, you know, terribly far, but you would have to drive down, you could just walk. Like we had to take chairs up for family, like me and my cousin. And by the time we had put the chairs in the truck, driven the truck and parked it, everyone who had walked was already there. Like, you know, it was nowhere. It, it wasn't <laughs> far at all. And it's a lot more fun because you're like in camp and you can hear if, even if you're not up there, you can hear the drums and you can hear the music mm -hmm. and there's like basketball courts up there too. So like a lot of the kids were playing basketball. It was a lot more open space. It's not in the woods and it just felt much better because the last time I was at a, I was at a homecoming was a, as it was as a kid. I usually go back for like dances and other like band specific things, but just cause like the past couple of years, you know, this weekend is in the middle of field season. Yeah. So I haven't been able to go back for this in a long time just cause of work. Um, but, but here, because of the funeral, a lot of my family was there. And it was kind of like funny because I was talking, we had talked about like death a couple weeks ago. So like during this morning ceremony, like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G for my uncle, it's like a, you know, it's like a three day event that ends with a feast and it's all ceremony. So I don't want to get into it, but there was this, I was, I mentioned this in our group chat with Shane and Jesse. A lot of us were so concerned about fucking up because like we're kind of used to being yelled at. As, as kids, especially, and a lot of us still think that way. Now they're all adults with their own kids, but we still think about when we were kids and getting yelled at for stuff. So after we buried my uncle, we have to go back to the Pawnee Nation Roundhouse for the morning feast. And we were all like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. There's no time to dilly dally. And even some of my cousins wanted it. You know, their parents had passed. So they wanted to visit their gravestone. So they had to be quick about it. So we're all super concerned to get back in time because we, God forbid, we were late. But right as the service was going to start, we heard like the door creak open. You know, everybody in the roundhouse is like looking towards the entrance. And this woman and her family come in holding the those Sonic Route 44 mega cups and then dragging this cooler. And the only way I can describe it, it's like that scene from Men in Black when Will Smith is like dragging the table across mm -hmm. the room in white to do the test. That's what it sounded like. And everyone was fucking pissed. And the head man of the ceremony, 
you know, he gets up, the, the room's divided, the roundhouse is divided in two. You have family on one side, you have guests on the other. And like part of this ceremony is like, it's my uncle's last meal with everybody. Mm-hmm. And so a family, this is the coolest thing about being Indian is like, there's a family that took care of us, so we wouldn't have to do it. So family, they fed us, like they made all the meals for my family and for the guests. And you can't say no. So like, I've, you know, we were breaking out Ziploc bags. So like, there's no saying no to food. You have to take it. So, but you basically get take like leftovers too at the same time. But as, as the head man is, is giving his speech, he like looks to us and he starts going on this rant about how inappropriate it was to bring in route 44s. So my, my uncle and aunt immediately get up and they start surveying the rest of us to look if we had brought tea. Cause we were all like, Nope. And for once it wasn't us that got in trouble, but we had, we'd been talking about it when, that woman came in because it was hot down there. And I was like talking to my cousins like, man, that actually like a Route 44 sounds like sounds great. <laughs> and after get, that person got chewed out publicly in front of the tribe for doing that, we were like, well, thank God we didn't fucking stop at Sonic on the way home. But then we just started making memes about the whole the whole incident. Like, you know, because that might you know how it goes. Like my family, especially like humor is a big deal. So like after a day, we found some funny photos of my uncle and meme the shit out of him. Like, you know, that face when you bring a route 44 sweet tea to the morning feast and get caught <laughs> stuff like that and then after that was done we were, we were you know, technically done morning and we can kind of have a little bit more brevity to have quote-unquote fun and just be home because it was fun being able to see you know matt and his role you know matt is still a south band chief who we've had on the podcast before and at the, that powwow he's up front on center stage you know judging people he's part of the whole process it was a lot of fun and can't, it was just fun to be around family have the teepee set up and um, just to be fed so much food and just to be around so many Pawnees because there's teepees all over the place. Everyone's mm-hmm. pretty much in regalia and it's a really good time. And even like tribal police from other tribes, they show up to help out. So that way our tribal police can participate. So it's this really cool like coming together of like Indians across Oklahoma to participate and be there for one another. And like our homecoming is like noted as one of the top things to do in Oklahoma for July 4th weekend. And it's, or, for, it's for it's for public to anybody. Yeah, yeah people yeah. can come all the time. Yeah. Like you know, you don't have to jump in. There's a lot of folks from other tribes that come, and even some, you could, like even some people, you know, because they they come from mixed Indian families. When they dance, like they're wearing, you can tell real quickly who's not Pawnee based on their regalia. But we do have like Northern style and stuff like that. But it's just like a fun time just to be to be Pawnee for a weekend and uh, be around everyone. It's just a good time and it, like camp hop was always fun fucking matt set up his tp it's it was funny because you can tell why he did it like he set up his tp right in the shaded part of a tree but next to the tree was this huge lamppost and like the first time i saw it the lamppost just empties completely into his tp flat <laughs> and i was making fun of him for it he's like he hardly got any sleep because the whole thing was just lit from the inside but like even the campsites they have water and um, power so like there was uh, the camp next door. They had two rotating fans in the center of a circle, so they could all get blasted with uh, with AC. It was just it was just a fun funny time, and it's like fun being able to go in those places. And I was like asking family, I was like, you guys ever brought friends or like dates to homecoming? And like most of them were like, no. Usually you have to be married. I'm like, is it against protocol? They're like, no. It's just like I don't want my family to fucking like tease the fuck out of anyone I bring. You know what I mean? Like they, they wouldn't be my friends or girlfriend again if they're after they like a weekend with the family because everyone's just hyped up, you know? Yeah. And did you ask about po- uh, fellow podcasts co-hosts? Is that a, my, my, my <laughs> uncle was asking about, about you too. Um, and Matt was too. He's like, Oh, he's like, are David and Connor here? And I'm like, no, I let them sit out. Like I needed to, I need to be back first and then scope out the land. And then next year, cause I imagine, like, cause I kept thinking like, you know, it'd be cool. Like, I really wish I'd brought my stone toolkit. Cause that would have been a perfect time, especially just sitting with everybody. Cause we we're all just visiting, like to sit down and make stone tools. That mm. would have probably gone a huge way to do that. And people were just asking, you know, what catching up. And now like a bunch of more of my family are starting to get PhDs. So it got, we got into like a weird academic space at one point talking about like indigenous ontologies and teaching it was just like dude i don't want to talk about this right now like i just yeah. i don't want to talk about academia at this you want to take, take a step back especially with all, all your, yeah. your last couple of years which has been turbulent at at best yeah <laughs> but it was good there's only a couple tribes and i think about it, like there's a potawatomi one 
and you have to be Potawatomi. Like they check, like you have to have a CIB or you have to show proof that you're related to someone with a CIB to get in. Like they do the fraternity, who do you know here? CIB? Thing. Uh, certificate of Indian blood, the Indian card. Okay. Like you have to show enrollment or uh, descendancy to be able to get in. But generally those things are just open to the public. But the dances are really fun. I mean, it's not just traditional stuff. Like there's the two-step where all the guys are out there and then women basically choose their dance partner. Did you get picked? I did. And I felt so bad because like what had happened was there's, a, there's <laughs> what had happened. Like there's a, a friend of mine from the museum board. She's on it. We were just chatting, but I was over by her, by her family's section. And I just kind of like, she's like, was everything okay with your family? And I looked over and everybody had their eyes on me and I started getting texts like, who are you talking to? I was like, Oh fuck. <laughs> and then, um, and then I just started, I just started seeing making jokes. And then uh, immediately it's like the two step came on. She's like, Oh, the two steps on. I was like, and I'm going to go get a lemonade and just fucking booked it and just like got <laughs> out of there. And then when I was getting a lemonade, I, I met some folks from Colorado that I used to work with and we were all just kind of chatting and I felt so bad. I was like texting her. I was like, I, I'm so sorry. Like I went to the blah, 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 blah. And then went back and for the rest of the fucking weekend, that's all I heard was just like, who's your friend? Like, where's, where's your friend at? Like, why were you late? Were you visiting your friend? I'm like, calm the fuck down. That's such a family thing to do every time, especially when you're single. It's like, who's that girl? Who were you talking to? It's like, I, I, I was talking to a female. That that, yeah. that that happened. <laughs> but then, but you know, that happens. But then like, that's how a couple of my cousins met their first wife or oh. that's who, who's their mom type of shit. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's coming but after the powwow and this is something i learned completely new this year everyone kept talking about the 49 like you go to the is there a 49 this year like who's gonna go to the 49 i was like what the fuck is a 49 they're like oh you don't know do you and i was like what is it so 49 is in reference to these 49 apaches or something they there was like 300 of them that went on the war trail and only 49 came back and it came back they sang these like war songs and like love and, and stuff like that but nowadays a 49 is what all the deviants do after a powwow they pick a place and they bring a drum and they sing like love songs and everyone gets drunk and drinks and usually gets busted up by the police later that night, mm-hmm. which is a whole part of power culture I had never heard of. Like, cause I was too little when I was a kid to know what a 49 was, but everyone kept talking about it. And I kept hearing like 49 stories of different years and places that it was held. And like usually the fights that happened there, or the girls that got caught, the people got, got cheating or cool stuff but it was like really weird like because i was thinking as an anthropologist it was like this is based on a historical event in which these songs were sung to commemorate these 49 out of 300 coming back and now we've turned it into something wildly (laughs) different to what it used to be where it's like you can go out afterwards and drink and smoke and you sing like those ridiculous like the modern day powwow songs where they're like have the love stories and stuff in them that aren't that are in English, not in not in Indian. But this year they didn't have any. They had a sober one at the grounds, which were like, okay, a sober forty nine. Fuck it. So like, we all just went back to camp and we we're like, well, we'll just pregame the sober forty nine. <laughs> and by and like by the time we got up there, like ten minutes later, it was already over. We we're like, what the fuck? So it was just like, huh. That sounds like a sober gathering. Yeah, and I, they <laughs> literally, well, no one really showed up. It's like, yeah, because we all went to pregame the sober forty nine. Like you had it immediately after the powwow. We all had to go and take a couple shots to come back to this. You guys just didn't wait long <laughs> enough. <laughs> but it was cool. Yeah, no, I'd like to have you guys come out maybe next year, or the year after, because it's just like a fun four days and a lot of food. It's a lot of fun. A lot of stories are told, and that's where like a lot of people start talking about some of the older stuff that had happened or especially like younger kids are then asking their grandparents or great grandparents history and family facts. And that's where a lot of that transfer of knowledge is occurring is at these camps because these camps aren't like single family units of mom, dad, their kids. Like a camp is the entire extended family. Like my camp was my great uncle and my great aunt's kids, their kids. And like, so there's all of us are in one spot. Like everyone with the last name Gover or used to have the last name Gover is in one place at this campground. That's all wild. catching up. Yeah. And that's how all the other families are. You know, so you go to these camps and there's like several dozen people that know each other. So it's an aggregation. <laughs> yeah. It's like this aggregation. It's it's a it's a it's a murder of Govers or whatever it is. And yeah, they're just and they're a fun time. And it's part of um like especially in Oklahoma culture, there's the powwow summers where you could go as like a professional if you wanted to live as a powwow dancer you could do it all summer in oklahoma because every weekend there's a powwow somewhere Hmm. you know and you could just go dance at all these different powwows and and make it like a lot of high school kids do it 
I've always wanted to see an Apache crown dance. Those look super cool. Never mm. seen one before. That's the one oh. that have the huge headdresses with like the sticks and stuff. Because like Oklahoma is that weird place where like old tribes from the East Coast to the West Coast, like there's some like California tribes that ended up in Oklahoma. So you you get basically if you wanted a, a, a charcuterie board of powwow culture, <laughs> go to Oklahoma because you could see all these well, different. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> a charcuterie board of powwow culture, <laughs> and then you know there's a lot of non-Indians there too. Like there are hobbyists, is what they're called. Hobbyists will show up. Powwow hobbyists is that powwow hobbyists? It's a thing where people do it as a hobby, and they like they usually have the best stuff. The Germans are huge powwow hobbyists. They have like a really weird like fetish with Native Americans. That's wild. They go, they go super hard. But like I didn't see it. I was like looking around. There's a lot of jewelers and silversmiths. Not no one was flint napping. And like we had been talking, especially with David recently about flint napping. There wasn't a single. I didn't see anyone working stone. Check my last video on my YouTube. Yeah, that's interesting, dude. Because that, that's something I noticed. Just not a single indigenous. Someone was like, I, "My dad is Choctaw." And I was like, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm saying you bring in the ethnocynology bus and let's pull out some stones and just start working. Yeah, man. Working I just stuff. love to hear about dogs and stuff from those people too, if they wouldn't mind. But I do like, again, like, like I pointed out in that video though, I do feel weird going to a very indigenous event and just being like, hey, remember this thing you used to do that was your way of life? Watch this white dude do it, but I'm Jewish. And then... Yeah, you get away with it more than I do. (laughs) I'm part of a tribe. (laughs) Wouldn't go over well. (laughs) Yeah, but you're not like because the because I've seen it. I'm not an asshole. No, you're not. No, I've seen. You're not the person that's like I'm saving your culture. You're just participating. You know, like David's not that kind of guy that shows up. Like if it wasn't for me, you'd have lost this knowledge. It's like fuck you, dude. David's not that guy. No, but everyone's kind of asking about that kind of stuff, especially recently. That. uh, you know, Pawnee history back in the day and how things were set up and people were asking about mm-hmm. stone tools and they're like, so what kind of arrowhead did we use? Was it different? I'm like, no, well, it's a thing called plain side notch and you find it from Alberta down to Texas. It's kind of like the ubiquitous, this is the mastery of arrowhead technology right here. This is what we all used. Yeah. You can get that Gold in the West cycle. too. Yeah. yeah. In the desert, what the desert try notch. The only other thing is they add a little, little thing in the bottom, but yeah, that stuff exists basically across the whole us at that time just imagine yeah. like a steve jobs pony and he's like all right so you had this one we added another notch now the <laughs> software in this one is outdated and you're gonna have to buy the tri notch <laughs> he's wearing a that turtleneck too and everything the buckskin turtleneck please it'll it'll probably i'll probably die of heat exhaustion but i still want one yeah it was it was yeah it was a whole it was just fun to be around because like usually the past couple of years at powwows that they're in our tribals or I'm up in Shoshone land, but it was cool just to see the all the Pawnee swag and what everyone was doing. And everyone, you guys have seen that. I showed you that picture where I got that new um, ribbon shirt and the yeah. sleeves are dangling off the edge. I showed that to my sisters and they fucking lost it. I was like, where's your ribbon shirt? I'm like, so funny thing. And I like showed them the photo <laughs> and they're like, holy shit, what the fuck happened? And I was just like, they... Didn't understand the measurements. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, give it to yeah. us and we'll, we'll fix it for you. I was like, thank you. They're supposed to be a blouse. They're based off of a French blouse. That's why they're longer in certain parts. Mm. Huh. I did not know that. One time we got, I mean, this is irrelevant, but we, I, I had to order a suit for a friend's wedding, like rent one. And the shirt measurements were so far off that the shirt came down to like past my knees. And the company was like, can you send a photo and let us know what's wrong with it? And I just held my like hands out and it was like down to my feet. And I said, yes, you sent me a shirt from the nation of Islam. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Gimli with the chain mail. It's a little shine around the Literally, chest. Literally. Like, like, how do you fuck the measurement up that bad? Was this my wedding? Possibly. Or it was Sam's. I can't remember. I think it was your wedding. <laughs> Yeah, because all the shirt projects. Yeah, yours was also messed up, and Michael blew through his p- pants. And on that oh, note, <laughs> we are going to end this segment, and we will be right back with episode 164 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Welcome back to episode 164, Nintendo 64 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, David Howe, joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and Carlton Gover. Carlton? Uh, that, Carlton. Carlton, that was a fascinating <laughs> talk. I appreciate it. The carton of milk. Thank you for yeah. thank you for missing, that. missing child. Uh, but yeah, Connor and I wanted to talk about Warren, a mammoth site 
in Wyoming. And the goal of this site was to find out if it was killed by humans or not, and that is very likely a no. It died a hundred years before Clovis arrives in Wyoming. So it was like a pretty like interesting, like possible, but it just was an elephant that died. I don't know. How do you want to so go about this? It's paleontological, paleontological. Not archaeological. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and and the story of this comes from the landowner at the time was digging. He was digging a, a well, yeah, or a water line or something. Ends up popping through something. I think he sees the tusks, or he sees some was, part of um, the guy doing the excavator, Her, Gerardo. Uh, he mm-hmm. found like the femoral head, and he was like, "Oh shit, a dinosaur bone." Yeah. Yeah, and then they proceeded to contact the University of Wyoming and bring us out there because we are interested in mammoths or or the people in our department are very interested in mammoths and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of set off a a series of events that that brought us to there. Yeah, and the reason Spencer got called the state archaeologist and Todd was because the guy originally called the paleontology department and because it was a mammoth found like at that level – in Wyoming, pretty close to like other mammoth sites. They were like, I don't know if they carbon dated it first there or not with the paleontology. Regardless, they were like, you need to contact the SHPO or like the state Alza Office of the Wyoming State Archaeologist because it's probably archaeological if it's that young, which is why it was excavated archaeologically because paleontologists just kind of dig around the bone, not looking for tiny micro debitage of stone tools around it. So, yeah, and I think that yeah. the, their preservation is the same. So, like, ultimately, they find almost all the elements of it they've got they're missing a tusk and they've got missing a mandible the lower mandible is that yeah from what i saw yeah the jaw but they, they have lots of elements and i think paleontologists would do the same thing we do which is we cast it save it and go deal with it in the future yeah but but the surrounding methods is are significantly different like you wouldn't dig one by one meter units with the shovel or anything, if you were doing it paleontologically. Yeah. They would just carve right in kind of just blow through it. But digging there last year for the whole time, it was like they found the femoral head. So the, the trench that was opened went past that to see where like the direction in which the bone should go. And as those units kept opening up, it was just like more and more long bones, more and more verts, more and more just like, everything and it was so cool to just i time-lapsed all of it so like just seeing a mammoth just slowly come out of the ground was really cool and it was a female i think full-grown elephant and i remember standing there looking at the the femur and then the tibia or the fibula we couldn't tell which one it was at the time but measured that and then measured the femur and that was already taller than me so like like just put the tape measure next to me. So I wasn't even up to this thing's fucking shoulder. Colombian mammoths are huge. Yeah. The way it landed or the way it kind of stopped and was preserved is face down, which is not how mammoths fall, you know? Yeah. Early unless they're tripping, like unless you trip on a rock real bad and go face first, you generally just fall in place and or while you're running or whatnot. I thought it was ass up the way it fell. I can't remember. Cause well, we were looking down at, ass up. That's the, that's the way they like to preserve. Uh, <laughs> Cause yeah, we were looking at the <laughs> bottom of the mandible was stick, or the bottom of the max low is sticking out of the ground. But like, that's what I took pictures of at least, but the rest of the body could have been the other way. I don't remember. Like I, I just, you're probably right. Okay. Either way, it wasn't like killed and butchered. It just like died and then got like, flooded over and deposited in sediment. Lots of post-step stuff, lots of movement of bones and whatnot. That's interesting. It It was fun to be a paleontologist for the weekend. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, this year they had a bunch of stuff exposed. They found the tusk, which was super cool. Yeah, it was just like one of those cool things. A lot of people came out that I haven't seen in years just like because everyone wants to come see a mammoth. (laughs) Yeah. Also, some of the best field accommodations you could have. There's a house. Yeah. It's, It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm always so. given beer or food. Uh, we had a question from someone on the Ruins podcast recently. They're interested in doing archaeology in graduate school and asked like, hey, so they asked about accommodations and like j- just ask like, so what can I expect? And what I had to tell them was it depends on the project. 
It has nothing yeah. to do with the kind of archaeology you're doing or where you're located. It has everything to do with the project itself, what the funds are, what the deal is. You could be in a hotel. You could be in a tent. You could be in a car. Mm-hmm. It all just all just depends. Yeah. yeah. It, I feel like you, you could – funding can vary, but it's the way the people organize it and – take into account stuff because you i've heard horror stories and especially like overseas of people not being prepared to be in that country speak the language or anything like that and 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 having like a completely awful time they had all the money in the world to do that but they never took the steps to go actually do that so it's 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 really is a crapshoot and checking with people who've taken field schools before is probably like the most important thing you could do yeah. And I guess a good way to answer the the kid's question too would be like, if it's a historical archaeological thing in the middle of a city, obviously you can't camp. So you probably get a hotel where there's some kind of like apartment you rent, the school organize that or the project. But like where we work in the middle of the desert in Wyoming, it's like you just camp out right next to the site because why not? It's way cheaper. Yeah. I mean, like, well, in the nearest hotel is like an hour away and it's going to be like in the town of Buffalo that has maybe a Motel 8, if you're yeah. lucky. You know? Or, so it's or like, scum dance. Yeah, it's like very much <laughs> like, you know, at Hell Gap, what are you going to do, camp in Guernsey? That's like a, you know, it's, it's just not. Uh, yeah. Hartville, we're going to Sunrise, man. Yeah. So, yeah, that was. Well, Lynch was weird because you guys were in like a, a monastery or like an old church. Yeah, thing, right? Lynch, was, Lynch was weird. The first year they were out there, they, they did camp at the site and use the landowner's house and it quickly with like eight kids and the landowner it was just too busy so then we were able to set up accommodations in a catholic maternity hospital turned into basically a bed and breakfast it's a wild turn very wild turn And then, like in the fucking Dominican Republic, I'm sp- staying at a Sports Illustrated <laughs> timeshare, you know. So it's like all very much like I don't know what to say, you know. I'm very excited to go back <laughs> next week and, and get back in there and to live at a goddamn all-inclusive resort for for a week and have a whole. Is place the flight and stuff paid for too? I guess that's a question we should ask for the someone listening. My research budget's covering it. Okay, but for so students doing the field res- there. If you don't have a research budget, that's the deal. It's like you got to pay. Mm-hmm. The prices weren't too bad. Like I think mine total was like 800 bucks, And I only booked it like a week ago. So like a three-week notice to an international flight to the DR. That's usually the catch. If you can if you can afford to get to this project in the DR, everything else is taken care of. Gotcha. And that's a pretty, pretty sweet deal, I think. I think there's a like a push, an attempt to make these things cheaper more affordable have scholarships etc because they are course classes in most cases so you have to pay the the overhead of the school which can be a lot and then you your, your travel usually your food's covered etc but there is a push and there are good organizations out there that will give you scholarships and help and aid with with field schools because they can be painfully painfully expensive yeah and it's usually food costs. Like after doing some of the budgets with Doug and um, Marcel, the single most expensive thing running a project is always food cost. And I know to, to lighten that load to make the CU Boulder Field School cheaper, Doug and KC basically were like breakfast is on your own, which I hated. I think out of the like lunch should be on your own. Like breakfast is the most important meal for field school, having a hot breakfast where you can get the day started and have that energy you're right my whole field school every every meal was on us i didn't think about that yeah oh shit yeah like breakfast lunch and dinner yeah i'd be miserable so i mean mostly students spent their weekends like having to go because like the town of lynch their supermarket gonna support us especially some of those colorado kids that are fucking vegans like there's no (laughs) vegan food in lynch nebraska (laughs) uh you know what i mean yeah or yeah. the vegetables that they needed. So they'd have to go to like Sioux Falls or somewhere to, to load up. So, I mean. That's a, uh, a good point. I saw a recent article about like ableism in archaeology and in field work and stuff. And it made me think both ways on the topic. But like there's no way to get around getting into a giant trench with units and digging with a shovel in a wheelchair. Like you can't do it unless you like made a specific ramp. And like, you know, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say you can't. You could do it. It's just 
it's already physically demanding enough for people who are able to walk and crawl in there and dig and lift buckets and things. So I do understand, but though, that somebody in a wheelchair that can't walk or has, you know, is missing an arm or a leg or something, or somebody with just like RA, like rheumatoid arthritis that can't do too much. Like, what if they want to be an archaeologist? How do they do it? And like, I guess you would just do mostly lab work, but a lot of the stuff is in the field. So that, that's another thing you got to think about. I think there's, and I think there are field schools that you could probably find that are less intensive in, in, in those sorts of mobility ways. Maybe something historic where you're, yeah, you're going on the field. Work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it seems like a really difficult topic. Like I think we want, we always want to include everyone, mm-hmm. but the real sometimes the reality of our discipline is that it's backbreaking work in remote areas that are hard to get to. And yeah. I don't know. It's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's not a comment onto prejudice against disabled folks in various shapes. It's like, it's, it's the same. It can be this very similar to construction work, right? Yeah. If you can't physically get there or or be able to move or do these things, it's like what you can't. Yeah. I know. I, I know there's a very big more push like, um, Mississippi state, is doing a curatorial field school. So there's definitely a lot more pushes for folks mm-hmm. who want to be engaged actively in archaeological collections and parts of the archaeological excavation process to get that training to be able to to do the hands-on research, which I'm a huge proponent of. And I do know it sometimes gets tricky with, um, you know, even one of the things that we faced a lot is single-parent households not being able to do field schools because, like, what are their kids doing? Yeah. Mm. Or like, you can't oh, right. You cannot bring your kid most days to, like, it's probably against university policy, let alone, like, the dangers of bringing someone out to, to lynch yeah. when it's, what, 100 degrees and, and miserable. Or no. if you're doing school just as a, someone who runs a family and has to work, like, you can't just leave for six weeks for a field school. Yeah. Four weeks, yeah. Or even when it comes to the diet stuff, like don't care if you're vegan or vegetarian, but it's like, you better be taking omega three pills. Like if you're not taking your supplements, you will not have a fun time out here. And honestly, I love those kids because especially on hot days, they're like coal mines in the canaries. If the vegans start going down, I know I need to get everyone else drinking water. <laughs> they're the first ones to go. And it's like, <laughs> all right. So now everyone stop what you're doing. Vegans go in the shade, drink water, take your omega three pills. Everyone else start chugging. Yeah. It's like, and there's that rank because they're not getting the, the, you know, it's just like field work. I don't care about your choices. I mean, there's one poor kid we had one year who was going through a multitude of, of medical issues and we we're like, dude, we respect your decision to be a, a vegan, but you did not bring any of the supplements you needed for you. You are going to eat this fucking chicken breast because, or you will die. Yeah. If it helps, it came from down the street. It was an organic free range chicken. Yeah. I mean, the other option is I guess he would go to town and get food or or you're done. You bring it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. it was, the, it was the supplement issue. It's like, they didn't have just those lifestyles. Oh, oh, you have I to thought supplement. you meant supplements as in like pills. I was like, yeah. Oh. Like they weren't taking, cause a, a vegan diet does not provide all the necessary nutrients you need. So like it, uh, it, it, it showed, so they didn't bring them. And it's mm-hmm. like, you can go home, you can fail the course or like whatever the deal is, or you can just eat this chicken breast and you will be fine. Yeah. That also reminds me too, when I was doing, I guess I did two field schools. Like I did Topper. It was just like a month out there. And then the next month I did my actual like paid for field school at Topper though. And LaPrell here in Wyoming and Warren, like there's always like cook rotations, like people help cook and there's a cooking tent or a cooking kitchen where everyone cooks. And like, then you have like a buffet style, like you walk down the table, like making eat making your dinner essentially and that was the same at topper but at the time i had to be medically it was medically necessary i was gluten-free and like everything it was the south so everything was just like fried fucking like really delicious food and i couldn't eat a lot of it and especially sandwiches at lunch too so i would just have to eat you know cold cuts on its own and then um gluten-free bread tastes disgusting and usually have to refrigerate it so that was hard uh but anyway the the person cooking every day would be like, can you eat this? Can you eat this? And I was just learning about gluten-free and I was like, I think so. And she was like, cornstarch is just corn. And I was like, I don't know, probably not. So she had to make like a specific thing for me and my friend Kelsey, who was also gluten-free and like behind our back, she would call us the celiac twins. 
because like she just hated having to cook a separate meal. So just be aware of that. Like, and especially the one where I had to bring my own food every time. Like I had a cooler with ice in it and I just prayed that the, you know, ice wasn't melted. (laughs) I think, I think you can solve that at least initially with the communication with your professors or being upfront about these things. And sometimes you might not be able to do that field school. You might not be able to do it because of your restrictions. And that's, that's just life. That's just the way things are, but you have to upfront tell these, tell people these things. Otherwise they're not going to be able to prep to ultimately, cause they have to keep you safe <laughs> for the next yeah. like month or so, you know, and, and it's rough environments. It's hot. You're going to be miserable. They need, they need to know these things. I said, that also goes with CRM too. I mean, like when I was doing the pipeline mountain, Valley, mountain Valley pipeline project, I always had breakfast and you have to bring your lunch bold around like there was sometimes like there was one part of the project that was like an hour out that we did stop at a gas station and everyone knows gas stations in the south all have kitchens and so people started relying on that for breakfast and then when we weren't going there half the crew wasn't doing well in the morning because they thought they were gonna get like a hot chicken biscuit sandwich and it's like Mm. yeah just gotta just gotta do it yeah well on that depressing note like if you want to do a field school Check with the professors, check with the school, like it should be fine. And I'd say most of them are probably fed and like you should have accommodations. But if you're not, if you can't sleep outside in a tent, if you're allergic to pollen, like be upfront about that and make sure you ask those questions. But yeah, be sure to rate and review the podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks for sending us the questions, Connor. I was just going to add one more thing. Yeah, there is a push in, in, in archaeology too to um, work with people with different abilities. So be aware and and ask around we can probably put you in touch with people so yeah but thank you once again for listening appreciate y'all sorry for the zencaster fuck up if it happened you know let us know so we can take care of it yeah absolutely yeah that's it peace out Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And if you made it this far, you know what time it is. It is time for Connor's witty joke. I'm going to (laughs) come. What do you call a number that can't keep still? A roaming mineral. Wow. It's pretty good. Scraping the bottom of the barrel on that one, Connor. Mm. Oh, that's where I live. Daddy, chill. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.